0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotron.com/agony.
1: And without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to our fabulous moderator, Terry Bisson. Uh, Thank you very much for coming. Um, We have a really exciting program tonight. We have some, and so I'm not going to talk a lot. I have a lot to say about all these authors, but I'm going to put it off until after the break uh, when we'll have a chance to sell some books, get a beer, and then we're going to come back and uh, have a discussion with all these authors. Thanks for coming to SF and SF. As usual, I want to ask people to turn on their cell phones in case you get a better offer. And did I say turn off? Oh, turn them on. Okay. <laughs> Stan's actually doing it. So um, rather than go on and on, I'd like to start. Our first reading this evening uh, is an author that. Um, is very important in today's science fiction world. He was even featured recently in Time magazine. He's a favorite of mine, even though uh, not only because he's one of my best friends, uh, along with Paul Park and Bill Ayers, but, um, <laughs> but be, he's an author that I've admired um, for quite a while. And so I would uh, would just I will just begin by introducing the author of Years of Rice and Salt the author of Green Mars, Red Mars, Blue Mars, and the author of 60 Days in County, Kim Stanley Robbins.
0: Thanks very much, Terry. Thank you all. It's nice to be here. It's so much fun to come down to San Francisco. I love these. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple of passages from my most recent book, 60 Days in County, which is the end of a climate trilogy you might say a washington dc trilogy louder and uh, louder yeah Hmm. okay how about that we're good good? okay being argentinian he was angry not that all argentinians were angry but many were and (laughs) rightfully so after all the mistakes and horrors but especially after the dirty war and its dirty resolution a general amnesty for everybody, for everything, for anything, even the foulest crimes. In other words, repression of the past and of even the idea of justice, and of course the return of the repressed is a guaranteed thing, and all is a nightmare, a breakout of monsters. So Edgardo Alfonso had left Argentina behind, like so many other children of the desaparecidos, unable to live among the torturers and murderers, both known and unknown, who were free to walk the streets of Buenos Aires, and ride the trams, who stared at Edgardo over the edges of their newspapers, which held on their backsides the articles Edgardo had written, identifying and denouncing them. He had had to leave to remain sane. So, of course, here he was at the Kennedy Center to see an evening of Argentinian tango, Boca's troupe out on Boca's farewell world tour, where the maestro would dance with a ladder and a handstand his way to heaven for one last time, to Piazzolla's soledad. Edgardo cared nothing for dance, per se, and despised tango, the dance, the way certain Scottish acquaintances winced at the sound of bagpipes. (laughs) But Edgardo was a Piazzolista, and so he had to go. It was not often one got a chance to hear Astor Piazzolla's music played live, and of course it would never be the same now that Astor was gone. But the proof of the strength of his composing was in how these new pickup bands, backing the dance troops, would play their accompaniments to the dancers, Tangos, for the most part, made of the utterly cliched waltzes, two-steps, ballads, and church music that had been cobbled together to make old-style tango, and then they would start a piece by Astor, and the whole universe would suddenly become bigger, deeper, darker, more tragic. A single phrase on the bandonian and all of Buenos Aires would appear in the mind at once. The feeling was as accurate as if music possessed a kind of acupuncture that could strike particular nerves of the memory and immediately evoke it all. The audience at the Kennedy Center was full of Latin Americans, and they watched the dancers against the black backdrop closely. Boca was a good choreographer, and the dances were insistent on being interesting. Men with men, women with women, little fights, melodramas, clever sex. But all the while, the band was hidden behind the black curtain at the back, and Edgardo began to get angry yet again. This time that someone would conceal performing musicians for so long. The itch of their absence bit into him and he began to hate the skillful dancers. He wanted to boo them off the stage. He even wondered for a second if the music had been pre-recorded and that this tour was being done on the cheap. Finally, however, they pulled back the curtain and there was the band. bandonian, violin, piano, bass, electric guitar. Edgardo already knew they were a very tight group, playing good versions of the piazzolla songs, faithful to the original and intense. Tight band, incandescent music, It was strange now to observe how young they were and to see the odd contortions they had to make in order to get those sounds. Strange but wonderful, music at last, the ultimate point of the evening, huge relief. They had been revealed in order to play Adios Nonino, of course, Piazzolo's goodbye to his dead father, his most famous song out of the 3,000 in his catalog, and even if not the best, or, or rather not Edgardo's favorite, still it was the one with the most personal history. Edgardo's father had been disappeared, God knew what had happened to him. Edgardo resisted thinking about this as being part of the poison, part of the torture echoing down through the years and the generations, and one of the many reasons torture was the worst evil of all, and when a state used and condoned it, the death of a nation's sense of itself. This was why Edgardo had had to leave, also because his mother still met every Thursday afternoon in the Playa de Mayo in Buenos Aires, with all of the other mothers and wives of the desaparecidos, gathered in their white scarves, the scarves symbolic of their lost children's diapers, to remind Argentina and the world, and in Buenos Aires those two were the same, of the crimes that still needed to be remembered and the criminals who still must face justice. It was more than Edgardo could face on a weekly basis. Now, even in his nice apartment east of DuPont's circle, he had to keep the blinds shut on Sunday morning so as not to see the dressed-up good kindly Americans, mostly black, walking down the street to the corner church so as not to start again the train of thought that would lead him to memories and the anger. He had to look away or it would kill him. His health was poor. He had to run at least 50 miles a week to keep himself from dying of anger. If he didn't, he couldn't sleep and quickly his blood pressure ballooned dangerously high. You could run a lot of anger out of you. For the rest, you needed Piazzolla. His own father had taken him to see Piazzolla at the Teatro Dan in 1973, shortly before he had been disappeared. Piazzolla had five years before disbanded his great quintet and gone to Europe with Amelita, gone through the melodramas of that relationship and its breakup and a succession of bands trying to find a Europop sound, trying an electronica and string quartets and getting angry and angry at the results, though they were pretty good, Edgardo felt. So that when he came back to Buenos Aires for the summer of 7374 and regathered the old quintet, he was not the same confident composer devoted to destroying tango and rebuilding it from the ground up for the sake of his modernist musical ambitions, but a darker and more baffled man, an exile who was home again, but determined to forge on no matter what. But now more willing to admit the tango in him, Edgardo's father had explained. He was willing to admit his talent was Argentinian as well as transcendental. He could now submit to tango, fuse with it. And his audience was much changed as well. They no longer took Piazzolla for granted or thought he was a me- megalomaniac. With the quintet dispersed, they had finally understood. They had been seen and hearing something new in the world, not just a genius, but a great soul. And of course at that point, now that they had understood, it was gone but then it had come back. Maybe only for one night. Everyone thought it was only for one night. Everyone knew all of a sudden that life itself was a fragile and evanescent thing, and no band lasted long. And so the atmosphere in the theater had been electric, the audience's attentiveness quivering and hallucinatory, the fierce applause like thanks in a church, as if finally you could do the right thing in a church and clap and cheer and whistle to show your appreciation for God's incredible work. At the end of the show, they had leaped to their feet and gone mad with joy and regret, and looking around him, young Edgardo had understood that adults were still as full of feeling as he was, that they did not grow up in any important respect, and that he would never lose the huge feelings surging in him. An awesome sight, never to be forgotten. Perhaps it was his first real memory. Now, here, on this night in Washington, D.C., the capital of everything and of nothing, the dancers were dancing on the stage, and the young band at the back was charging lustily through one of Piazzolla's angriest and happiest tunes, the furiously fast Michelangelo 70. Astor had understood how to deal with the tragedy of Buenos Aires better than anyone, and Egardo had never ceased to apply his lesson. You had to attack sadness and depression head-on, in a fury. You had to dance through it in a state of utmost energy, and then it would lead you out the other side to some kind of balance, even to that high humor that the racing tumble of Bandonian notes so often expressed. That joy that ought to be basic, but in this world had to be achieved, or as it were dragged out of some future better time. Life ought to be joy, someday it would be joy, therefore on this night we celebrate that joy in anticipation, and so capture an echo of it in advance of the fact a prolepsis, a kind of ricochet. That this was the best they could do in this supposedly advanced age of the world was funny in an awful way. And there weren't that many things that were both real and funny. So there you had to hang your hat on how funny it was that they could be as gods in a world more beautiful and just than humanity could now imagine. And yet instead were torturers on a planet where half the people lived in extreme immiseration while the other half killed in fear of being thrust into that immiseration and were always willing to look the other way to avoid seeing the genocide and species side and biosphere side they were committing, all unnecessarily, out of fear and greed. Hilarious! One had to laugh. And Thank you. Tuberculosis progressed in Thoreau until it was clear he was dying. He was 44 and just beginning to become a well-known writer. In the bold, if morbid, style of the time, people dropped by to visit him on his deathbed. It became a kind of tourist destination for the New England intelligentsia. Stories were told to illustrate his flinty character. God knows what he thought of it. He played his part. A few weeks before he died, a family friend asked him, quote, how he stood affected toward Christ. Thoreau answered, as reported later in the Christian Examiner, that, quote, a snowstorm was more to him than Christ. His Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, and he replied, I did not know we had ever quarreled. (laughs) Uh, Parker Pillsbury, an abolitionist and a family friend, dropped by near the inn and said to him, you seem so near the brink of the dark river that I almost wonder how the opposite shore may appear to you. Thoreau said, one world at a time. (laughs) Then he died, and for Emerson, it was yet another in the series of catastrophic premature deaths that had struck his loved ones. Wife, child, friend. In reading Emerson's essay on Thoreau, Frank had sensed the intense care the old man had taken to give a fair and full portrait. In reading Henry Thoreau's journal, I am very sensible of the vigor of his constitution. That oaken strength which I noted whenever he walked or worked or surveyed woodlots. Henry shows in his literary task. He has muscles and ventures on and performs feats which I am forced to decline. In reading him, I find the same thought, the same spirit that is in me, but he takes a step beyond and illustrates by excellent images that which I should have conveyed in a sleepy generality. Tis as if I went into a gymnasium and saw youths leap, climb, and swing with a force unapproachable, though their feats are only continuations of my initial grapplings and jumps. Emerson went on, he knew the country like a fox or a bird, passed through it as freely by paths of his own. His powers of observation seemed to indicate additional senses. He saw as with microscope heard as with ear trumpet, and his memory was a photographic register of all he saw and heard. He thought that if waked up from a trance in this swamp, he could tell by the plants what time of year it was to within two days. To him, there was no such thing as size. The pond was a small ocean, the Atlantic a large Walden pond. He referred every minute fact to cosmical laws. In short, a scientist. But Emerson's grief also had an edge to it, a kind of anger at fate which spilled over into frustration, even with Thoreau himself. I cannot help accounting a fault in him that he had no ambition. Wanting this, instead of engineering all America, he was the captain of a Huckleberry party. Whoa, that is pretty harsh. (laughs) And Frank saw reason to believe that this was not the first time Emerson had used that phrase, and the first time it had been said right to Thoreau's face. They argued a lot, and about things they both thought mattered. And in Thoreau's journal, whenever he was grumbling about the terrible inadequacies of friendship, it was pretty clear he was usually complaining about Emerson. (laughs) This was particularly true whenever he wrote about, (coughs) capitalized, the friend. It made sense, given the way they were. Emerson had a huge range of acquaintances and spread himself thin, while Thoreau had what Frank thought would now be called social anxieties, so that he relied heavily on a few people close to him. It would not have been easy for any friend to live up to his standards. Emerson wrote, I think the severity of his ideal interfered to deprive him of a healthy sufficiency of human society. In any case, they clashed, two strong thinkers with their own ideas, and so they saw less of each other, and Emerson disapproved of Thoreau's withdrawal and his endless botanizing. Only in the privacy of his journal did Thoreau make his rebuttal to Emerson's waspish accusation. This was why Frank thought that Emerson had made it directly to him, perhaps even shouted it, He imagined the two men out in Emerson's yard, Thoreau having dropped by without warning, withdrawn and contrary, headed to the woods, and the lonely old gabster hurt by this and frustrated to see the potential great voice of the age go missing in the swamps. You could be engineering for all America, and yet off you go to be captain of a huckleberry party, Thoreau wrote in his private journal. To such a pass our civilization and division of labor has come that A, a professional huckleberry picker, has hired B's field, C. A professed cook is superintending the cooking of a pudding made of the berries, while Professor D., for which the pudding is intended, sits in his library writing a book. That book, which should be the ultimate fruit of the huckleberry field, will be worthless. There will be none of the spirit of the huckleberry in it. The reading of it will be a weariness to the flesh. (laughs) I believe in a different kind of division of labor, and that Professor D., should divide himself between the library and the huckleberry field. And four days later, still nursing this repost, he wrote, we dwellers in the huckleberry pastures are slow to adopt the notions of large towns and cities and may perchance be nicknamed the huckleberry people. In the end, despite these spats, the two men were friends. they both knew that a twist of fate had thrown them into the same time and place together, and they both treasured the contact. Thoreau wrote of his employer, teacher, mentor, and friend, Emerson has special talents, unequaled. The divine in man has had no more easy, methodically distinct expression. His personal influence upon young persons greater than any man's. In his world, every man would be a poet, love would reign, beauty would take place, man and nature would harmonize. It's interesting how even here Thoreau alluded to that source of conflict between them, the question of how to make an impact on the time. Meanwhile, Emerson thought Thoreau had disappeared into the woods and failed to live up to his promise. He could not foresee how widely Thoreau would eventually be read. It took many decades before Thoreau's journals were transcribed, and only then was his full accomplishment revealed. A very rare thing, the transcription of a mind onto the page, so that it was as if the reader became telepathic and could hear someone else thinking at last. And what thoughts of how to be an American and how to see the land and the animals, and how to live up to the new world and become native to this place. His Walden was a kind of glorious distillate of the journal and this book grew and grew in the American consciousness, became a living monument and a challenge to each generation in turn. Could America live up to Walden? Could America live up to Emerson? It's Still an open question and every day a new answer comes. Frank reading these guys in awe having found the true sociobiology at last a reading of the species that could be put to use that helped one to live looked around him at all the ferals he lived amongst at the polyglot conclave of all the peoples in the city and he watched the animals coming back to the forest and he thought about how it could be and he saw that it could happen that they might learn how to live on this world properly and all become huckleberry people at last. Emerson meanwhile lived on He carried the burden of grief and love, and his tribute to his young friend ended with the love and not the reproach, as always. The scale on which his studies proceeded was so large as to require longevity, and we were the less prepared for his sudden disappearance. The country knows not yet, not in the least part, how great a son it has lost. It seems an injury that he should leave in the midst of his broken task, which none else can finish. But wherever there is knowledge, wherever there is virtue, wherever there is beauty, he will find a home. Frank tried to make one of those homes. He read Emerson and Thoreau. He forwarded the link for emersonfortheday.com in all of his emails and passed on their news. One day, emersonfortheday.com had this to say, Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1846, so 15 years before the Civil War. Every reform is only a mask, under cover of which a more terrible reform, which dares not yet name itself, advances. Slavery and anti-slavery is the question of property and no property, rent and anti-rent. And anti-slavery dare not yet say that every man must do his own work. Yet that is at last the upshot.